0: Welcome to the Terry Podcast Tales from Near and Far Read to you by Protum Data Charles History of England by Charles Dickens read to you by Protum Data This is where we stand The year is round about mid fourteenth century. And Richard II come to the throne. His father, of course, the very famous son of Edward III. His name, of course, was the Black Prince, or Edward the Black Prince. He died. And, of course, when he died, he left his very young son to succeed him on the throne. But he had to wait. When the young son came in, which is richard ii he was carrying the namesake which of course was fantastic but it didn't change the very fact that he needed to be a potentially useful ruler and that he did not as we've just learned issued the poll tax, which was charging taxes based on people, which meant that small houses with lots of poor people would end up paying more taxes than large houses with very few people. And that created a lot of problems. While, of course, he was slowly waning the Hundred Years War against France, external conflicts were coming to a close but internal conflicts were beginning. He was to a certain degree peeving of so many people in England alone that he would quite likely start the War of the Roses that was to come. So when the poor peasants rose up to demand for a more fairer tax system, the king was a bit brutal at was known as the bloody circuit to try the rioters. Internally, there was a person called the Duke of Gloucester who stood up against the king and the king submitted to a certain degree knowing that he couldn't really go against such a powerful landlord and this is where we stand. But Gloucester's power was not to last for ever. He held it for only a year longer, in which the very famous Battle of Autogon, sung in the old ballad of Chevy Chase, was fought. When the year was out, the king, turning suddenly to Gloucester in the midst of a great council, said, "'Uncle, how old am I?' "'Your Highness,' returned the duke, is in your twenty-second year. Am I so much, said the king, then I will manage my own affairs. I am much obliged to you, my good lords, for your past services, but I need them no more. He followed this up by appointing a new chancellor and a new treasurer and announced to the people that he had resumed the government. He held it for eight years without opposition. Through all that time, he kept his determination to revenge himself some day upon his uncle Gloucester in his own breast. At last, the good queen died, and then the king, desiring to take a second wife, proposed to the council that he should marry Isabella of France, the daughter of Charles VI, who, the French courtiers said, as the English courtiers had said of Richard, was a marvel of beauty and wit, and quite a phenomenon, of seven years old. The council was divided by this marriage, but it took place. It secured peace between England and France for a quarter of a century, but it was strongly opposed to the prejudices of the English people. The Duke of Gloucester who was anxious to take the occasion of making himself popular, declaimed against it loudly, and thus at length decided the king to execute the vengeance he had been nursing so long. He went with a gay company to the Duke of Gloucester's house, Pleshey Castle in Essex, where the Duke, suspecting nothing, came out into the courtyard to receive his royal visitor. While the king conversed in a friendly manner with the duchess, the Teague was quietly seized, hurried away, shipped for Calais and lodged in a castle there. His friends, the earls of Arundel and Warwick, were taken in the same treacherous manner and confined to their castles. A few days later, at Nottingham, they were impeached of high treason. The Earl of Arundel was condemned and beheaded, and the Earl of Warwick was banished. Then a writ was sent by a messenger to the Governor of Calais, requiring him to send the Duke of Gloucester over to be tried. In three days he returned an answer that he could not do that, because the Duke of Gloucester had died in prison. The Duke was declared a traitor. His property was confiscated to the king. A real or pretended confession he had made in prison to one of the justices of the common pleas was produced against him, and there was an end of the matter. How the unfortunate Duke died, very few cared to know. Whether he really died naturally, whether he killed himself, whether by the king's orders he was strangled or smothered between two beds as a serving man of a governor's named Hall did afterwards declare, cannot be discovered. There is not much doubt that he was killed somehow or other by his nephew's orders. Among the most active nobles in these proceedings were the king's cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, whom the king had made Duke of Hereford to smooth down the old family quarrels and some others who had in their family plotting times done just such acts themselves as they now condemned in the Duke. They seem to have been a corrupt set of men, but such men were easily found about the court in such days. The people murmured at all this. And were still very sore about the French marriage. The nobles saw how little the king cared for law and how crafty he was, and began to be somewhat afraid for themselves. The king's life was a life of continued feasting and excess. His retinue, down to the meanest servants, were dressed in the most costly manner and cruised at his tables. It is related to the number of 10,000 persons every day. He himself, surrounded by a body of 10,000 archers and enriched by a duty on wool which the commons had granted him for life, saw no danger of ever being otherwise than powerful and absolute and was as fierce and haughty as a king could be. He had two of his old enemies left, in the persons of the Dukes of Hereford and Norfolk, Sparing these no more than the others, he tampered with the Duke of Hereford until he got him to declare before the consul that the Duke of Norfolk had lately held some treasonable talk with him as he was riding near Brentford, and that he had told him, among other things, that he could not believe the King's oath, which nobody could, I should think. For this treachery, he obtained a pardon and the Duke of Norfolk was summoned to appear and defend himself. As he denied the charge and said his accuser was a liar and a traitor, both noblemen, according to the manner of those times, were held in custody and the truth was ordered to be declared by a wager of battle at Coventry. This wager of battle meant that whosoever won the combat was to be considered in the right which nonsense meant in effect, that no strong man could ever be wrong. A great holiday was made, a great crowd assembled with much parade and show, and the two combatants were about to rush at each other with their lances, when the king, sitting in a pavilion to see fair, threw down the truncheon he carried in his hand and forbade the battle. The Duke of Hereford was to be banished for ten years and the Duke of Norfolk was to be banished for life. So said the King. The Duke of Hereford went to France and went no farther. The Duke of Norfolk made a pilgrimage to the Holy Lands and afterwards tied at Venice of a broken heart. Faster and fiercer after this. The king went on in his career. The Duke of Lancaster, who was the father of the Duke of Hereford, died soon after the departure of his son. And the king, although he had solemnly granted that son leave to inherit his father's property, if it should come to him during his banishment, immediately ceased it all. Like a robber! The judges were so afraid of him, that they disgraced themselves by declaring this theft to be just and lawful. His avarice knew no bounds. He outlawed 17 counties at once on a frivolous pretense merely to raise money by way of fines for misconduct. In short, He did as many dishonest things as he could and cared so little for the discontent of his subjects, though even the Spaniel favourites began to whisper to him that there was such a thing as discontent afloat that he took that time of all others for leaving England and making an expedition against the Irish. He was scarcely gone, leaving the Duke of York regent in his absence, when his cousin, Henry of Hereford, came over from France to claim the rights of which he had been so monstrously deprived. He was immediately joined by the two great earls of Northumberland and Westmoreland and his uncle the regent, finding the king's cause unpopular and the disinclination of the army to act against henry very strong withdrew the royal forces towards bristol henry, the head of an army came from yorkshire where he had landed to london and followed him they joined their forces how they Brought that about is not distinctly understood, and proceeded to Bristol Castle, whither three noblemen had taken the young queen. The castle surrendering, they presently put those three noblemen to death. The regent then remained there, and when Henry went on to Chester. All this time, the boisterous weather had prevented the king from receiving intelligence of what had occurred. At length it was conveyed to him in Ireland, and he sent over the Earl of Salisbury, who, landing in Conway, rallied the Welshmen and waited for the king a whole fortnight. At the end of that time, the Welshmen, who were perhaps not very warm for him in the beginning, quite cooled down and went home. When the king did land on the coast, at last, he came with a pretty good power, but his men cared nothing for him and quickly deserted. Supposing the Welshman to be still at Conway, he disguised himself as a priest and made for that place in company with his two brothers and some few of the adherents. But there were no Welshmen left, only Salisbury and a hundred soldiers in this distress the king's two brothers exeter and surrey offered to go to henry to learn what his intentions were surrey who was true to richard was put in prison exeter who is false took the royal badge which was a heart off his shield and assumed the rose the badge of henry after this it was pretty plain to the king what Henry's intentions were, without sending any more messengers to ask. The fallen king, thus deserted, hemmed in on all sides and pressed with hunger, rode here and rode there, and went to this castle and went to that castle, endeavoring to obtain some provisions, but could find none. He rode wretchedly back to Conway and there surrendered himself to the Earl of Northumberland, who came from Henry, in reality to take him prisoner, but in appearance to offer terms and whose men were hidden not far off. By this, Earl was conducted to the castle of Flint, where his cousin Henry met him and dropped on his knee as if he were respectful to his sovereign. Fair cousin of Lancaster, said the king, you are very welcome. Very welcome, no doubt, but he would have been more so in chains or without a head. My lord, replied Henry, I am come a little before my time, but with your good pleasure, I will show you the reason. Your people complain with some bitterness that you rule ruled them rigorously for two and twenty years. Now, if it please God, I will help you to govern them better in the future. Fair cousin, replied the abject king, since it pleaseth you, it pleaseth me mightily. After this, the trumpet sounded, and the king was struck on a wretched horse and carried prisoner to Chester, where he was made to issue a proclamation calling a parliament. From Chester he was taken on towards London. At Lichfield he tried to escape by getting out of a window and letting himself down into a garden. It was all in vain, however, and he was carried on and shut up in the tower, where no one pitied him. And where the whole people whose patience he had quite tired out reproached him without mercy. Before he got there, it is related that his very dog left him and departed from his side to lick the hand of Henry. The day before the Parliament met, a deputation went to this reckoned king and told him that he had promised the Earl of Northumberland at Conway Castle to resign the crown. He said he was quite ready to do it and signed a paper in which he renounced his authority and absorbed his people from their allegiance to him. He had so little spirit left that he gave his royal ring to his triumphant cousin Henry with his own hand and said that if he could have leave to appoint a successor, the same Henry was the man of all others whom he would have named. Next day, the Parliament assembled in Westminster Hall, where Henry sat at the side of the throne, which was empty and covered with a cloth of gold. The paper just signed by the King was read to the multitude amidst shouts of joy, which were echoed through all the streets. And some of the noise had died away. The King was formally deposed. Then Henry arose, and making the sign of the cross on his forehead and pressed, challenged the realm of England as his right. The archbishops of Canterbury and York seated him on the throne. The multitude shouted again, and the shouts re-echoed throughout the streets. No one remembered now that Richard II had ever been the most beautiful, the wisest and the best of princes, and he now made living, to my thinking, a far-sorry spectacle in the Tower of London than Wyatt Tyler had made lying dead among the hooves of the royal horses in Smithfield. The poll tax died with wet. The Smiths to the King and the royal family could make no chains in which the king could hang the people's recollection of him so the poll tax was never collected thank you for listening if you enjoyed it please comment and please like it and subscribe please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read thank you